We're going to be in a couple different places today. Um, I would ask you to go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. And you might want to put your finger in 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. We'll get to that in a little bit. So it's up to you whether you want to do that or not. But we're going to be in a couple different passages as we begin this series today. Uh, Now, if you've been with us, you know we have typically been in the book of John, um, and we were in John uh, chapter 14. We will come back to the book of John um, in the next uh, little bit here, but I wanted to take some time and and go through this series about uh, here is the church. What does the church look like? Um, What does that mean for us today? What does God tell us about uh, how the church is to function and operate and what our place in the church is to be. So as we go um, into the scriptures this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask this blessing on our time. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have now to study your word together. Thank you for the time we've had to worship together. And Lord, we pray that you would turn our eyes upon Jesus. Help us as we look in the word of God today to look full at his wonderful face. For there is nothing in this world that is worth holding on to. There's nothing that uh, is worth giving up a right relationship with God for. Lord, help us to see that today. And help us to embrace that fully with our hearts and lives. We pray that over the next few minutes, you would have the freedom to do your work in our hearts. We thank you um, for the work you will do. As you have promised to use your word, it does not return void, but you have promised to use it uh, in our hearts and lives today. your name we pray. Amen. The idea of church is not a concept that is foreign to us today. You drive through towns all across America and other countries, and you're greeted with myriads of churches. I have spent most of my life in the South. I grew up in Atlanta. I lived in Greenville, South Carolina before moving back to Atlanta, before we moved to Michigan three years ago. And I grew up in what is commonly called the Bible Belt of the United States. When I tell you there were churches on every corner, there are literally churches on every corner. And you get up here in Michigan and and these sorts of places, it's much the same, right? You go into any larger city and, and there are churches everywhere, it seems like. Some of these churches you may be familiar with, some you may not. Church buildings have become a staple of our world, and it is is a surprise to our first world Western minds when we find out about a country where churches are persecuted or restricted or relatively obscure. I believe it's also safe to say that, that most, if not everyone in this building today, cares about church in some way. Otherwise, I don't know why you would get up on a Sunday, you know, make an effort to look nice and gather in a room with dozens of people whom you're not related to and sing songs and listen to some dude speak for 45 minutes. I think it's because you care about church. Whether it's your first time or you've been attending church most of your life, there's a reason that you walked in the door today and that reason had something to do with what you believe about church. If we went around the room today and shared what, what is church, if I asked each of you today that question, I'm not going to do that, okay, but if I, we passed the microphone around and said, what is church, and you need to give us a definition or your, what that means, I'm sure there would be a plethora of answers that's given to that question. Now, undoubtedly, 
your own life experiences and your experiences within a local church will color how you answer that question. And while perhaps there is a, there's some tolerable variation on how some things are done as a church or are those that are connected to a church, there has to be a standard, right? I mean, there has to be a standard on what church is. And in short, yes, there is a standard. And that standard is set forth in the Word of God. The church is God's personal creation. Thus, he has given us guidance in his word for what a church is and how it operates. Cultural context may allow for some variance in applications, but there are some non-negotiable guiding principles and standards churches must stand on if they are to be a biblical church and that Christians should consider when making their own personal decisions regarding church. So therefore, I would like to undertake this study over the next several weeks with this this title, Here is the Church. I want to look at what the Bible says about church, and I want want us to all come together asking God to help us apply these things to our personal lives and this local body that we sit in. And today, we're going to begin by looking at the foundation of the church. I mean, if you're going to understand the whole concept, you've got to start somewhere, right? So we want to look at the very basics of what the scriptures teach us regarding the church. And we want to understand those basic concepts and principles about this institution. And what we'll see throughout the message today is this. The church was established by God through the work of Jesus and is the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth in this time. You want to see the kingdom of God. Look, you should look no further than the church. Because within the church, you find those who belong to the kingdom of God. We'll talk about that, what that means in just a minute. You want to you know where the church comes from. It doesn't come from uh, some Baptist general conference or you know, whatever conference you want to call it. It comes from the word of God. It comes from the work of Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of the church. And as such, he, Jesus, as God, defines the church. And if we want to be a Bible-preaching, Bible-believing church that's doing the work of God, then we don't need to look within ourselves, we need to look within his word. And that's what we're going to do. And I hope it'll be profitable for you, I hope that it'll be encouraging to you, I hope that it will be um, even self-evaluating for you, that you and I will look together and say, okay, what does God say about, about me and what does God say about If you're a Christian, as as a member of the church, what am I supposed to do? And so let's begin with the most basic question, and that is this. What is the church? And I want to begin, really, even further than that, I want to begin with the word, right? The word church. If you ask anyone today, let's say we decide to go outside of here, and we went into Beaverton, Gladwin, or wherever, and we said, you know, what is, what is church? What is the church? Typically, these people are going to tell you about a place or a building, right? Well, I mean, yeah, we know about church. There's one right down down there in the corner, or don't you go to church over there? That's what we typically think of, right? We oftentimes think of the church that we go to or one we know of when we hear the word church, Church is an exciting word in our home. We have little kids, and we talk about on Saturday night, hey, we got to get ready, you know, we got to get cleaned up, got to get your weekly bath or whatever it is, okay? 
I told you I'm from the South, right? Okay. Because tomorrow we're going to, to church, right? And while that's a legitimate use of this word, right? It, it has come to represent buildings in which local assemblies meet. This is not the core meaning of the word church. In Scripture, this word means so much more than a cute little building where people go on certain days of the week. It means more than a denomination or a religious group. I want to look at the word itself and how it was used by God and his word. The word church is a Greek, comes from the Greek word, and that word is ekklesia. Okay? So, if you want to know how to spell it, it's E-C-C or E-K-K, whichever one you want to prefer. L-E-S-I-A, ekklesia. The word meant, in general, a gathering or an assembly of people. But it became associated with, in the New Testament, the gathering of believers. And and the word means, literally, it means called out once. And it refers to a congregation or assembly of people. Ecclesia, called out once. And in the New Testament, it was used to refer to, to, to assemblies of people in general but then more specifically to the church of God. So what does that mean? I mean, what does it mean that that the church is a group of of called out ones? Well, specifically, it's talking about those who are called out of the world into the kingdom of God. It's talking about those who know Jesus Christ through salvation, through faith alone in him. And that brings us then, okay, so what does that mean? Right? I mean, you tell us the word, but, but what does that mean for us? Well, It means primarily this. The church does not refer to a building. It refers to a people. If we next week couldn't meet here, you know, something happened to the building this week, a fire or the pipes burst or whatever, we could still meet as a church because it doesn't depend on whether we meet here. The church is a people. The term church refers to those who have been called out of this world into faith in Jesus Christ. And so something we have to understand is this. Salvation through faith alone by the grace of God is God's work. He has to call to himself those uh, who would come to him as salvation and regenerate those who trust in him. And all those who place faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation are part of God's church. So if you have responded in faith to Jesus Christ, you are part of the church. Now, sometimes this phrase is used then to talk about the universal church, right? All of those who accept Jesus Christ in faith are part of God's church. The church is not defined by a denomination. The church is defined by the word of God. And as far as a denomination is faithful to God and his word, that is how biblical that denomination, as far as the church is faithful to the word of God, or how biblical that church is. It is necessary that local churches then stay faithful to God and his word. And there is a necessity here for us to understand why do we need to know what the church is and how God defines it. Well, it is not unfair to say that over the years, The church, in general, has received criticism and scorn. Would you agree with that? That in general, the idea of church has come under fire. Now, it is also not unfair 
to say that some of those things have been justifiably earned by the church, have they not? Some churches have abandoned the teachings of the Word of God. Some churches have failed to apply God's word in all they do and say. Some churches have gone out and done terrible things and said, we do this in the name of the Lord. I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at other churches and and things that, that groups of people do in the name of the church and say, we're doing this in the name of the Lord. And I think this, could you just not, right? You know, whatever you're doing, could you just not do that, right? Or could you at least take the idea of Christianity and church off of it because it doesn't line up with what God says. Other times, there are churches lumped in with true followers of Christ that do not follow Christ at all. We were discussing this in my Sunday school class this morning, and I I said, you do understand, right, that Catholics and Mormons and, and we as Protestants or evangelicals oftentimes get lumped in by the world as Christianity. I said to them, I said, I don't want to be with those other people, right? Because what they teach is not the Word of God. Instead, the more general assembly of people definition is used to describe churches, and it feels like we're thrown into a mixed bag. So therefore, it is necessary to understand what God intends for the church. The church is God's work. It always has been. It always will be. So what does God intend for a church. He intends to build a church for his honor and his glory as the manifestation of his kingdom. So in scripture then, we see what the church is called to be. It is promised to be the work of Jesus and is described by God to be certain things. So we're going to take the rest of our time today and look through several points at what the church is called to be and what it is according to the word of God. I had you turn to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we're going to go first. And we're going to look first of all today at this, Jesus' promise to build his church. In Matthew chapter 16, we see here in verses 13 through 18 what takes place between Jesus and his disciples. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What you see in this passage is a couple of things that Jesus reveals about the church. Number one, you see Jesus' plan for the church. Here in this passage, we have one of the greatest declarations of truth by the disciples that you read in the scriptures. We, We actually covered this in our, uh, somewhat in our series on the book of John, uh, when in John chapter 6, you see this, this declaration that's made as well. Jesus has taught his disciples throughout his ministry much about who he is, and he's warned them against those who would draw them away from the truth of who he is and what he's come to do. And so here, he questions them on who people claim he is, or people claim who he is, who he is, like who his identity is and what he's there to do. And some people, they say, they claim Jesus is a reincarnated prophet. 
You know, you're, you're Elijah or you're Jeremiah. You've come back to give these messages from the Lord. Some say he's John the Baptist who had been beheaded and now is brought back from the dead. And what, what we're seeing is that people are willing to admit that Jesus is at least a, a messenger from God. I mean, they're willing to ascribe to him the identity of someone God has used in the past. You know, to the Jews, those are very important people. Jeremiah, Elijah, they've been used in a mighty way. They're messengers of God. And though that's a good thing, it's not the truth, right? It's not accurate to who Jesus is. Because Jesus is so much more than this. He's the son of God and God himself. And so Jesus continues to probe and question his disciples for their own thoughts. He wants them to confirm their knowledge of him. These 12 men have seen his miracles and heard his teachings. His actions truly back up what he claims. Again, I, I refer to you if you've been with us in John. We've said this numerous times. Jesus is who he says he is, right? John records those things to show that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and you would believe in him. And Jesus, as God knows what the thoughts of his disciples are. He knows what they are coming to know and believe about him. And so he asks them this question, why? That they may confess openly their belief in who Jesus is. And here you have, perhaps one of the fa favorite disciples of many, you have Peter, the outspoken spokesman of the group, right? He always has something to say. And he gives one of the greatest confessions you will ever read in Scripture. He looks at Jesus and he says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the promised one, you are the deliverer. That's what that title means. You are the one who has come to save. You are the son of God. This is the truth of who Jesus is. This is the foundation of the Christian faith. Jesus must be God or there is no hope. Jesus must be God or there is no life. Jesus must be God or there is no church. Jesus is the core. And so from this confession that Peter makes, Jesus is declaring his plan for the church. He confirms to Peter the validity of his statement. He confirms God's work in Peter's life, that, that God has revealed this to him and, and drawn Peter in in his faith, and Peter has responded to this. And on the rock of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus now states his plan for the church. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I have many other things I want to say, but, but please understand there are some who claim that Peter is the rock that Jesus builds the church on. Usually these are our Catholic friends, right, who say then that Peter goes on to be the first pope, right? Now that is a very basic summary of the belief, okay? But understand, that is not what the text communicates here. That is not what the Greek communicates here. What is communicated here is that Peter's confession that he has made that Jesus is the Christ, that truth. That is the foundation of the church. We see that here and we see it, we'll see it later in, in more New Testament teachings about the foundation of the church. On this truth that Jesus is the Christ and therefore God, Jesus will build the church because he is the only foundation of the church. You need to understand that here in Matthew chapter 16, the church had not come into existence yet. 
Now God, in the Old Testament times, had covenanted with his people, Israel, through the law. We just read about this on Wednesday night in our Bible study in Exodus chapter 19. He had revealed there, he's revealing there his ways to them, and he called for their worship and their obedience. And all along, throughout this covenant, he is pointing them ahead to the coming Messiah who would initiate a better covenant, the covenant of grace. That's why God says to his people in Jeremiah, I will write the law of God on your hearts. It's not just a law that's going to be written down, you have to go and look at and follow. It's going to be that which dwells within you. Is a better covenant. It's a covenant that would be initiated in Jesus Christ because Jesus came not to destroy the law, he says, but to fulfill it. And when he fulfilled that law, he sacrificed himself for the sins of mankind. He rose again and he gives life to all who trust in him. We read that this morning in our scripture reading in Colossians. And in doing this, Jesus established the church. All then who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior are part of God's church. Again, we need to understand then this. The church is not man's invention. One of the greatest things that we need to come to realize that because it is not man's invention, it is not my job then to grow the church. That's God's job. God says, Jesus says, I will build my church. That's what he says there, right? I will build my church. It is not my job or your job to force anyone into the kingdom of God. Now, this does not absolve a Christian from the work of God's kingdom. Okay, let's not take that route. Well, you know, it's God's job to to build the church, so I'm good. I can just go about my... No. It's God's job to build the church, and he uses those who trust in him to do that. It is my responsibility to share the gospel. It is my duty to be a witness for the Lord. It is my calling to turn conversations to the theme of themes, inviting others to hear the good news of Jesus and helping them to see the need they have for him. But ultimately, it is God's work in their hearts that they need. And so, there is a necessary tension here that rises that is both compelling and relieving all at the same time. It is compelling because I am to spend my life as a Christian living for the kingdom of God in his strength and seeking to make disciples, sharing the gospel with others. That's what compels me. But it is also relieving because I know that it is God's work in their hearts and he can use me in some small way to do his work. Have you ever looked at the impact that God may have allowed you to have on somebody's life and been amazed at how God used that and thought, wow, that is only by the grace of God that that happened? Because that's what it is. It's God's work through them, in them, through us. So Jesus promises here to build his church. That's his plan. That's Jesus' plan for the church. That's his work. And if you were to turn a few pages over and read the book of Acts, which please don't do that during this time, but you can do that later. You can read the book of Acts, and you would see there how God began to build his church. God's church was built in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It was built 
in the house of Cornelius the Gentile. It was built in the desert where Philip led an Ethiopian man to the Lord. It was built in Philippi when a jailer and his family were led to the Lord by Paul and Silas. Every time someone accepts Jesus Christ as Savior, God keeps this promise, I will build my church. That's his plan. There are Christians all over the world today meeting with brothers and sisters in Christ in local assemblies because God is keeping his promise to build his church. And since he builds it, he also protects it. Jesus continues on in this passage. Not only does he tell us his plan to build the church, we see Jesus' protection of the church. In verse 18, he says this, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a, a sobering phrase. It is an encouraging phrase. And, and one we, we, take, we, we take joy and, and we rely on God in. Now, interesting here to know the gates of hell. What does that signify? Well, what it signifies is, is death and eternity separated from God. Because that is what hell is. It is a place reserved for Satan and those who serve him. If you die here in this earth, without a relationship with Jesus Christ, you spend eternity in hell, separated from God. Jesus spent more time in his ministry speaking about hell than he did about heaven. Because it's a reality we need to understand. And the worst part about hell isn't the horrible things that will happen there. It is the absence of the presence of God. We are separated from him for eternity. And Jesus says that That this eternal death, the gates of this place, hell, will not prevail against the church. Understand, when Jesus spoke these words, he had not gone to the cross. He would go to the cross sometime later. He would die, but he would rise again. The gates of hell would not prevail. He would rise victorious over them from the grave. Death has no power over those who belong to Jesus and salvation from sin. Physical death will not be the end of those who belong to him. Furthermore, and of greater import than physical death, spiritual death is a broken reality for those who are in Christ. Therefore, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But Satan is also an active enemy, is he not? And Because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, therefore no work of Satan will thwart God's plan. Satan is the sworn enemy of God, and since the beginning, he has been at work in God's creation. And Satan has relentlessly attacked the church throughout the years. He has tempted leaders to fight and squabble He has drawn in Christians to live for themselves in the sinful world that their flesh craves. He has inserted wolves in sheep's clothing as false teachers who have entered the church preaching a perverted gospel. He has sown weeds among the wheat as those who profess to be believers sit among God's people in churches every week. Satan will do everything he can to oppose God's work and seeks to make it ineffective. You can count on it. And admittedly, sometimes it seems to work. Churches implode over petty, foolish things. Christian leaders damage so many lives with moral failings. 
Christians are hurt by other Christians and they turn to unbiblical views of faith and church. Christians grow complacent in their first world churches and fail to raise a passionate, God-loving generation. Can we admit that sometimes things look really bad in the church? But Jesus promises this, the war is not over. And he will continue to grow his church. Even in the face of Satan's attacks. And one day, he will claim eternal victory over Satan, and in the end, his kingdom will be established forever. In the end, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in the meantime, we will continue to live and exist in the church age. We live in this time where God is building his church. So let's see what God calls his church and what that means for us. I want to spend the rest of our time today looking at some descriptions of the church from the New Testament. This is where you need to turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll spend the first part in this passage, and I have some other verses I'll show you here on the screen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is writing here to the church in Corinth, and he describes the church in several different ways. In verses 5 through 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see that the church is described as God's field. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. The church, Paul says, is God's field. Now, the church in Corinth had some serious issues. And I'll just say it this way. If you think you have ever been a part of or heard of a church that had some problems, you need to read 1 and 2 Corinthians. They had some major issues going on. And one of the issues that Paul is addressing here, uh, as he, he dealt with these issues by inspiration of God, is they had some allegiances they had formed to certain leaders within the church. And Paul and Apollos here are named as two of these people. Paul makes it clear here that the church is not about a human leader. He he says here in this question, who is Paul and who is Apollos? What he means is this, in and of themselves, these men are nothing special. They are merely servants of the Lord through whom the people came to know God. He says that here in verse 5, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. If I asked you today, how many of you, Paul is is like one of your Christian heroes, or maybe your Christian, probably many of you would say, I mean, that guy was awesome, man. You know what Paul called himself over and over and over again? A servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is. That's who he was. We see that God uses humans in his eternal work. That is a great and glorious truth, one that I am eternally thankful for. And you have probably been ministered to over your life by dozens of people over the years. Perhaps you've experienced powerful preaching in times of great growth under certain pastors or speakers in a local church. But in the end, the work of God is only effective if it is God's work. Paul presents here the church as God's field. 
He says that he and Apollos are just two of the servants who serve in the Lord's work. He says here the the seed of the gospel is planted by one and watered by another. And though a certain individual may be there to see one enter the kingdom of God or maybe be instrumental in that process, it is ultimately, Paul says, God who does the work. The one who plants the seed and the one who waters the seed aren't anything. It is instead all about God who built his church. If you look around in the local area we live in and see farmers who every year plant seed, they plant corn, they plant beans, they plant you know, whatever it is there, potatoes, and they do the work, right? They put in the time. There's a lot of work that has to go into that. But at the end of the day, the farmer can't give the rain and make the sun come out and this and that. God is the one who oversees that, right? That picture translates very well to what Paul is saying here, right? To the church. God calls for those who are part of the church to be invested and involved and and work, do the work of the kingdom of God. But in the end, it is about God who does the work. God will reward them, his faithful servants, he says. It says here at the the end of verse 8, Each will receive his wages according to what? According to his works, according to his labor. He doesn't say, by the way, according to his success rate. According to his conversions. According to his, what does he say? According to his labor. What does God call people in his church to be? He calls them to be faithful. He calls them to do the work of the Lord. God is the one who determines what is the outcome of that. God will reward his faithful servants for their labor, not the results. Those who carry out their calling as servants for his work will receive their due in eternity. But that is God's work for his time. So what am I saying? Well, it's a good thing to like the local church that you're a part of. I hope that's something that you like, right? I mean, that's something that we think about a lot as human beings. It's certainly the calling of a pastor to be friendly and congenial, caring for the sheep that God brings into his flock. But listen carefully. If you are a convert of a certain pastor or leader subscribing solely to their method, their personality, or otherwise, you need to understand what God says. God says the church is about the Lord. It's about God. It's about his work. Now, if a pastor or a church is following the Lord... That's where you should want to be. We want to be there because, not because we like the guy. I mean, I hope you like the guy. But we want to be there because because they're serving the Lord. They're following God. That's why we want to be there. The church is God's field. Secondly, Paul says in verses 9 through 15, the church is God's building. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, according to the grace God of God given to me like a skilled master builder I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it let each one take care how he builds upon it for no one can lay a foundation other than what is laid which is Jesus Christ 
Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on, a founda- on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul says the church is also God's building. It is the work of God upon the foundation of faith, which is Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of the lives here that we are living. The lives that you and I are living are what we are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That is all a life that is that is all a life that will live in eternity with God can be built on. You can build your, your life on anything you want. You can build it on, on your career, on your family, on, on whatever you think gives you purpose, but the only thing that you can build your life on that will give you eternity is building your life on Jesus Christ. That is the only foundation that can be laid that matters for eternity, and that gives us access into heaven. So then how you live your life, Paul says, determines the type of building material you are using. Applied here to the church, what a a church does and who a church serves determines the type of material that is used in that ministry, so to speak. Things that are done in service to self and sin and not for the kingdom of God, Paul says, will burn up in God's judgment. It is the wood and the hay and the sticks Now, a person like that, church like that, your soul will be saved because of faith in Jesus, but you will not have anything of value from those things to offer God in worship. However, when we live our lives for the kingdom of God and his strength and for his glory, Paul says it will be like gold and silver and precious stones. When put to the test of God's judgment, fire of judgment, they will be refined by God. We may have something to lay at his feet. The church is God's building. His people are to be built up here. It is the duty of the church to help the people of God build on the foundation of Jesus Christ with material that will not only last, but will be refined by the Lord in judgment. It's the work of God. Lastly, in this passage, Paul says in verse 16 and 17, That the church is God's temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul now reaches back into the Old Testament and pulls out a picture of the Old Testament temple to represent believers who are the church, right? Because remember, the church is a people. It's not a place. In the temple, God's presence dwelt with his people. Now, God is omnipresent. He is not not contained, right? Solomon said that in his prayer, that, that God is not contained by this temple that I have built. But it is at the temple, representing where the people came to worship him, that, that God's presence was seen. Under the new covenant, initiated by Jesus, that was changed. You and I do not need to go to the temple to worship God. We, Paul says, are that temple. Why? 
because believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you know Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit within you to empower you to live for the kingdom of God. He has regenerated you, giving you spiritual life. Peter would go on to use this Old Testament imagery when referring to those who are in the church. He said in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just as Israel was chosen and set apart by God, so too has the church been chosen and set apart by God. Now, unlike Israel, and unlike that old covenant, what does Peter say? All believers are priests. In Israel, there were only certain people from the the tribe of Levi who were the priests who could go in. And and only one of those was the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies to offer the sacrifice to God. What does Peter say? Under Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you can enter the presence of God. You can come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because he has redeemed you. Because he has saved you. Because he has given you life. We have access to God the Father through the finished work of Jesus the Son. So therefore, pointing us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 17, God takes attacks on his church seriously. Jesus had promised his disciples what? That the gates of hell would not prevail against the church Here we see strong words then against those who would attack the church. Whether those attacks come from within the church or without, God says through Paul here what? God will destroy those who attack the church. Ultimately, they will face eternal damnation for their work against God. This should be a wake-up call to Christians that we would live as those who are set apart by God. He has called you out to live for him as part of his church. We go on to see that what else is the church called? It is called in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, the body of Christ. It says, and he is the head, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The church is a living, functioning organism. It is the body that does the work of God here on this earth. I said this earlier in the message that the church is the manifestation of the kingdom of God in our world today. Therefore, it should function for the glory of God under the direction of Jesus. Paul says that Jesus is the head of the body. What does he do then? He directs what all the other members do. He is the one who is in charge. By the way, also as the head, what does Jesus do? He gives life to all the other members of the body. Think of the picture of the body. You chop off the head, what happens? The body dies. We have life through Jesus. He is the one who directs what the church does. We have no part in the body of Christ without his salvation of our souls. So as part of the body, 
All those in the church should look to the word of God for direction on how they should live out their part. In Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus gave instructions for his followers on how they're to live for his kingdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul outlines how there are different members of the body who carry out the mission of the church, working together to live out their calling as the church. We understand that not everyone has the same gifts and abilities within the church. Not everyone has the same exact callings or or, or are in the exact same places to do the same things in the church. Now, there are some universal calls and there are some universal admonitions To every believer, right? Jesus said, go and make disciples. That's not one of those things we go, you know, that's not really my gift. God says as a Christian, it's your calling. Go and make disciples, right? There are some universal admonitions. But there are also other ways we can be used of God within the church as part of the body. It is important then that we submit ourselves to Christ the head of the body, serving him. What does it say at the end of this verse, in verse 18? That in everything, he might be preeminent. Who's the he? The pastor? No. Who is the he? The church members? No. Who is the he? The denomination? No. The he is Jesus Christ. That he would be preeminent. He would be exalted. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul tells us next that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. He says, I hope to come see to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Here, Paul is addressing his protege in the faith, Timothy. He is instructing him on how to carry out his work for the Lord. And it is here that Paul once again presents the mission of the church. He says the church is the household of God. It is God's family made so in Christ. It is the church of the living God. He is present in the lives of believers and in the gathering of believers in local assemblies. We serve a living Savior. So then the church then is to be the pillar of and the buttress of the truth. Paul is using a, an architecture picture here to show that the church is to hold up the truth of the word of God to a watching world. Paul did not say the church is the inventor or the source of God's truth. It is the pillar that which upholds what God has given. It is a pillar that supports what is true, displaying for all to see. It is a buttress to protect the truth from error. So the church must give itself to the ministry of the word of God. The responsibility of the church is to proclaim the word of God. Now this should, of course, be done from pulpits in congregations like these, where this pastor has probably gone on too long today, I'm sorry. And you expect when you walk in a church, you should expect that the word of God is going to be preached. And if it's not, and you care anything about the word of God, you're probably going to walk out the door. Because that's what a church is called to do. But let's go beyond that, because the church isn't just a building, right? It is a people. So what does that mean? It means that this should be true in the life of every believer. 
you, as a Christian, need to know the Word of God so that you may declare the Word of God and protect it from error. When you're having that conversation with your friend at work or your neighbor or your family member and they say, well, you know, the Bible says, and you know the Bible doesn't say that, okay? When somebody says that to you, you know, the Bible says this, you know what the first thing you should say? Where? Because nine times out of ten, the answer is, well, I don't know. And then you should go on and say, okay, well, when you find it, let's talk about that. But if you don't know the Bible, if you don't know the Word of God, when someone says to you, well, the Bible says, it's very easy to go, well, yeah, but, right? When the Bible doesn't even say that. Or when someone opens the Bible and says, well, it says right here in this verse, you say, okay, and, you, and again, you know that, well, that doesn't seem right from what, what I know about the Bible. Where would you go? I know where, where the easy places to go. Dear pastor, this week I was having a conversation. And by the way, I'm totally okay with having those conversations, okay? I don't want you to be, oh, man, this guy, oh, you know, I'm becoming a sermon illustration. I love having those conversations. You know what my goal in those conversations is, by the way? To help you learn how to study your Bible. We've got some teens, some younger kids in here today. There's going to come a point in your life where somebody says, hey, why don't you do that? And you go, well, my mommy says. Okay, you're 19, okay? We probably need to own this a little more, right? We need to know the Word of God. The church is to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. That's true of a local congregation, but it's more broadly true of individual believers. We need to know the word of God. We need to live the word of God. We need to advance the gospel. That is the God-given mission of the church. Lastly today, what is the church? The church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church is presented in the scriptures as the bride of Christ, awaiting the return of her groom for marriage. He, Jesus, sacrificed himself for the church that she may be cleansed from sin, sanctified, and washed in his blood. Therefore, she will be holy and without blemish because of his work on her behalf. What's that hymn we sometimes sing? His robes for mine. Paul presents this picture in Ephesians 5 as the way in which husbands are called to love their wives. I've preached this passage and in its main context, okay, and it's an important passage, but I want us to look at the picture here that, Jesus, that, God, that Paul is using. That Jesus loved the church so much, he gave himself for her in this way. And one day, he will return to claim his bride. And until that day, we are to be watching and waiting for him, living for his honor and glory. One day, the church will be in the presence of God forever. This is celebrated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Therefore, let us live in light of this reality. Everything a local church does should be for the edification of the bride of Christ. Everything you as a believer do should be for the edification of yourself as a member of the church in the things of God. Everything a Christian does should be for the glory of the Lamb who gave himself for me. This is the foundation of what the church is. It is defined by God, established by God, and directed by God. The church was established by God through the work of Jesus and is the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth at this time. We sang this this morning. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. This truth is of vital importance for us to remember as we consider the church. Leaders are important. Members are important. Operations are important. Ministries are important. But nothing is as important as building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Nothing is built without Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Nothing is completed with him, without him first completing his priceless work of redemption. Nothing can be successful without his empowerment and if we do not obey him. This falls on the shoulders then of every believer. As members of God's church, it is the responsibility of each Christian to live a life of obedience to God, growing and changing in a vibrant relationship with God. Local churches can only thrive if individual believers are living in obedience to God. This begins with the pastor and it flows all the way down. Each local body must compare itself to the word of God and seek to apply the truth of God's word in everything it does. As we continue in this study, may God continue to burden our hearts to live in obedience to him as a church. So today, what is God calling you to do? What is the next step on your spiritual walk with him? Perhaps you have never come to a personal knowledge of God. You've never come to a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Perhaps you live in disobedience to God in some area of your life as a Christian. God has the answers for all of these things in his word, and he calls for you to respond today. Let us look to Jesus the foundation of the church. As Paul says, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, thank you for the day you have given us to be in your house. Thank you for the word of God and its power to change our lives. Thank you for the ministry of that word. Thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ who saves us from our sin. And Lord, we ask that today you would, again, fill us with the awe of who you are and what you've done. That you would convict our hearts of sin. 
Lord, I pray today for believers. You would work in our hearts and lives. You would, you would point out what it is we need to change it and why we need to change it. That we may live to the glory of the kingdom of God. That you would help us to do so. Lord, I pray for one who is here today who does not know you as Savior. That you would show them again their need to trust Jesus and Jesus alone. They may be part of your church. You would do that work today. Lord, we ask as we close this service that you would continue this work in our hearts on the ride home and throughout the week. That you would use your word in a mighty and powerful way. We thank you. We give you the honor and the glory and the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray.